Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey everybody, welcome to another new episode of Undying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and hopefully this week we'll be wrapping up chapter 20 in the Gospel of Matthew. We have three sections, and we're going to look at Jesus foretelling his death for a third time very quick, because we've seen it happen two other times, a mother's request, which was probably going to be a bulk of the show. That takes us from verses 20 through 28. And then we'll close it out with 29 through 34, Jesus healing two blind men. And then next week, we'll look at the triumphant entry into Jerusalem. That's chapter 21. And uh, we'll continue working uh, our way through the gospel. Every Saturday, I am going, for the rest of the year, um, I'm going to release a short episode on the reading your Bible in a year. So I've made a commitment to... Uh, sit down each night, read with my wife. Uh, we're going to read the Bible in chronological order. And then on Saturdays, I'm just going to do a short recap. It will not be exegetical. It won't be real deep. It'll just be a, hey, here's what you should have read this week. Here's some things that are uh, jumped out. And here's a couple things that I really like you know, about this passage or this verse, or maybe we can connect it to something. Uh, but it's just there to kind of keep your eyes on certain points and certain passages. And if you're behind, it would encourage you to, you know, spend a little more time and hopefully dig into the word. So that'll come out on Saturday mornings. Uh, so today's Friday. So this will drop, you know, tomorrow morning. So just be on the lookouts. I'm going to have a title that's going to be under a secondary subtitle. Um, it will probably still follow in the regular show ordering just because if I do another season, or change anything like that, it's going to throw the whole thing off and my whole count's going to be all whacked. So it'll just be every Saturday, um, you know, like we did with the bonus episodes on Tuesdays a while back, they just are going to alternate between Friday and, and uh, Saturday. I had considered doing another podcast, but then I was like, eh, I have to pay for it. And then, you know, you have to advertise it and tell people about it. And it's like, look, you know, the, the four people that listen to this show, that's what you're there for. So, uh, you'll get a bonus 
you know, 15 minute episode every Saturday, if you desire to listen to it. So we are going to wrap up the 20th chapter of Matthew. So I think we're starting to pick the pace up a little bit in regards to working through the material and getting it uh, handled because, you know, it's a lot and I want to take and do the text, its rightfulness to being explained and properly examined. And I want to do its justice to, you know, each, each portion. Uh, but some of these get a little, I don't want to say redundant, but you know, we, we see some of this kind of continuing to re- reappear itself, especially with these opening few verses where we see the third time Jesus foretells his death. And so we've, you know, we know now that Jesus has his eyes set on Jerusalem. We know that he is uh, heading to that. And we know that after a few days in Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested and he's going to go through a mock trial and he's going to be uh, crucified. And Matthew spends a couple of chapters though on the week of Holy Week. And so this will be Palm Sunday through Easter Sunday. And so from 21 until the end of the gospel is his entire week in Jerusalem and then a little bit thereafter. And so we, you know, we're still a couple of months out from Easter at this point. You know, it's a it'll, Palm Sunday falls on the second to last Sunday in March. And then, which I believe would be the 24th, and then the 31st is Easter Sunday. So, with Ash Wednesday falling on February 14th. So, we, you know, there's a lot of dates coming up. We've got, um, you know, Holy Thursday or Monday Thursday. We've got Good Friday uh, in there as well between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. And then, you know, sprinkled in throughout uh, our church does some other uh, events as well. So, there's a lot coming in terms of the you know, the, the text, if you would, from Matthew, but also from, you know, the church as it stands. And so we're getting ready, uh, to kind of break into the Lent season. And it feels like, you know, we, we literally just closed Advent, right. And, you know, yes, Christmas season continues on through Epiphany, um, or until the Epiphany. So until January 6th, but we have, um, you know, we, we conclude that and then it's a few weeks of an epiphany and then bam, right into, into when. So it's just, it's so quick this year. It's like stacked on top of each other. So let's get into the text before I just kind of lollygag myself through 20 more minutes of talking to you. So let's look at uh, 17, 18 and 19. Again, we'll just kind of work on these real quick. There won't be uh, too much in, in depth here, but uh, we'll, we'll do the text. It's justice here. So And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. There you go. Pretty straightforward. Third foretelling of his death. He's going to be handed over. He's going to be delivered. He's going to be um, condemned to death. He's going to be then delivered to the Gentiles. He'll be mocked, flogged, and uh, crucified, and then rise on the third day. So obviously we know it's taken him now three times to foretell his death, and the disciples continue to kind of have this unusual uh, weirdness about it, if you would. They, they can't quite fathom what he's going to say. Remember in a prior instance, Peter 
you know, back in Matthew 16, Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. We won't let you be turned over and crucified. But here we see it again, and we don't see any, you know, kind of recourse or any reverberation from his disciples. Maybe they're starting to kind of get this. But even still, when uh, Jesus is arrested, they all scatter, right? So they know that it's coming, and they know that he's going to be crucified, but they scatter like sheep when the shepherd is struck. So it's interesting to see, you know, just kind of it's how it's just wedged in there. You know, they're on their way to Jerusalem. And, you know, the text says they're heading up there now. He takes the 12 aside. He, you know, he's got a, probably a large caravan, a large crowd following him. And, but he takes the 12 and he brings them aside and says, look, this is what's going to happen. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered or betrayed. Right, so that's another way to interpret that, uh, and we know that Judas Iscariot will be the one who betrays Jesus. So Judas will turn him over to the chief priests and the scribes, uh, and, and in the end, it's really the religious establishment that will push the hardest for Jesus to be crucified, because remember, in many instances throughout the four gospel accounts, Jesus is condemned or uh, accused of blasphemy by the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is essentially building this argument against himself by claiming to be God. And that's the point because Jesus is God and the Pharisees and the scribes can't render that. Therefore they resort to having him arrested and then turned over to the Gentiles where he'll ultimately be crucified and so it's almost like they try to wash their hands of it, of their sin, but we know that they are the ones who are essentially guilty of this. Uh, Gentiles here, we know later, by later accounts, it's going to be Pontius Pilate, the highest Roman authority in Jerusalem, uh, who would end up writing the death sentence for Jesus. Uh, and then he's just going to be crucified, mocked, and uh, flogged, and all this here. Uh, and then, But triumphantly, he's going to raise on the third day. So that's uh, another little foretelling of the resurrection. So for a third and final time, Jesus is predicting his passion. Ironically, Jesus's three predictions match the number of Peter's denials. The depth of humanity's sin is such that only the death of God's son can atone for it. No one took Jesus's life from him as his passion predictions make it clear. Rather, he willingly lays down his life in order to save us. So that's one thing we should also consider. It is not that the Gentiles or Pontius Pilate or the Pharisees and the scribes take the life from Jesus, but yet Jesus lays down his life for his people. All right, so we're going to look at now uh, in the next section here, a mother's request. This is 20 through 28. Uh, let's begin with that. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she had asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? And she said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit at your right hand and at one at your left in your kingdom. And Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? And they said, we are able. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but, in, but to sit at my right hand and, to, uh, and at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those of whom has been prepared by my father. And then he heard, and when the ten heard it, they were indigent at the two brothers, but Jesus called to them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, and the great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, 
but whoever would be the greatest among you will be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now I'm going to pardon, or I'm going to put that last verse there on pause, verse 28, uh, because the ransom for many, a lot of Calvinists will use this as a means to uh, argue limited atonement. And so we're going to put that verse on a pause and we're going to really kind of figure that one out together towards the end here of the show. So uh, sons of Zebedee, uh, we know that these are uh, brothers here, uh, their mother probably traveling with the caravan. And this was not something that was unheard of or uncommon in this time. And so she comes and approaches and uh, she kneels before him. Um, the posture seems ironic for a request uh, is really has little to do with humility. It's almost kind of a pompous question, a bit of an arrogant or prideful question even that she's doing so. So it almost seems, you know, kind of like, why are you kneeling if you're going to ask something so outlandish and ridiculous? Uh, so she's asking for these points. These are, you know, things that, uh, are essentially designated to be authoritative in nature, the left hand and the right hand. And then she concludes it here at the end, in your kingdom. And this is a time referring to when Jesus will exercise the fullness of his messianic authority. Jesus has already promised that the 12 apostles would share in this rule, going back to verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 28. So he's already made the statement that the apostles will have authority in the kingdom of heaven. They will have, you know, the, the control over certain things. And, but the mother seems to try and slip it in to get her son's authority, even elevated, if you would, seeking the highest of positions in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus obviously responds, you have no idea what you're talking about, right? The uh, drinking of the cup, we know uh, by turning over to Mark 10, and uh, even elsewhere, we could have Jeremiah 25 to consider as well. The drinking of that cup, this is the wrath of God to be poured out upon Christ. He's foretelling this right after he makes the statement to the 12 about his death. He is going to undergo something that these men are not capable of undergoing. Jesus has to do this by himself. And it is through Christ alone that this is accomplished. He does go on to say that they will, in fact, drink of their own cup, right? Because he makes a question. He's like, are you capable of doing this? Do you think you can? You have no idea what you're asking for. You have absolutely no idea what you're asking for. And they respond to him, well, we can do it, certainly. You know, yeah, or woohoo. And he says, oh, you will drink my cup. But who to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not for me to grant. So in verse 22 and 23, we see that they will actually, in fact, have a cup to be drunk from, right? And this is going to be their own persecution, their own suffering. And this will come at the hands of the Roman Empire and uh, Gentiles as these 12 apostles go out into the world to establish the church. All of them, except John, will experience a martyrdom for the faith that they have in Christ. And he goes, but this is not for me to grant. This is once again deferring to his father's authority. Right, We're seeing the separation of the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this would be something that God the Father establishes. 
This is, you know, something that Jesus doesn't seek the power to control. It is something that his father who uh, will have full control over. And then we move on to uh, verse 24. We have when the when they had heard it, they were indigent at the two brothers. So they get a little upset. They get a little angry. Um, they too hoped to be having seats at the highest power. It, you know, again, a, a pretty prideful request from the mother when all 12 in their own minds sought to have this seat, this authoritative position in heaven when they were just told earlier in 19 here that they will in fact have authority but they wanted more a little bit of kind of man's ambition right there right they they get enough but they want just a little bit more seems to be the story of all of our lives these days so verse 24 you know the essentially pointing to that and then jesus calls upon them uh you know that the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be uh, the same for you. And so the abuse of power by exploiting those who had less power, this is very common in the world. And the, Jesus is asserting to, the, uh, to his 12 apostles here, you won't be like that. You will not be like them. You will be uh, essentially equals in this life and in the next. You will have the authority that has been given to you. But in this life, there's not to be any squabbling or holding power or abusing those who may not have seemingly the same amount of power or authority when they all 12 have the same authority given to them. So he concludes verse 26, but whoever would be great amongst you must be your servant. So that's the uh, verse that is uh, you know, concluding here. And this is great, uh, going back to what we've talked about previously, greatness in God's kingdom is characterized by the willingness to serve others rather than their insta- insistence on being served. Jesus says, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And so this is the um, kind of the, the, the premise and the persona of Jesus Christ here. He's not coming to be, you know, like like the earthly kings and the rulers of the time where they expect and demand people to bow and serve them, but Jesus yet comes to serve. And we'll see this take place um, in a few days in the gospel of Matthew with the washing of the feet. Jesus, you know, again, takes upon the authority to um, serve his apostles. He takes it upon himself to lead in demonstration uh, what is needed to be demonstrated to them. So I, I do want to say, again, uh, we're going to pause that last portion of 28 and we're going to come back to it here at the end of the show. But I want to kind of highlight it a little bit here. Uh, verses 20 through 28, Jesus continues to convince his disciples that his kingdom, humility and service uh, is built on that. It is not to acclaim and power that are the most highly valued. Just as it is among the 12, so it will be today for the lust of power and control over others continues to be a problem within the Christian community. Though many things can make Jesus great, among them is his role at casting, creating, and preserving all things. In his sacrificial death, that is the most wonderful for us. It is exactly that. Even in the church today, we have hierarchical, is that even a word? Probably not. We have problems with the hierarchies. We have 
people fighting for more power, more control. And the one thing I like about like the Lutheran Senate that I'm a part of, we don't have bishops and deacons or anything like that lording over us. We, we as pastors answer to our church. The church has the authority to uh, call pastors and dismiss pastors. And we, me and the council and the church body make decisions that better suit the church together. It's not a, I have all the power. It's not the council has all the power, but it's together we make the decisions and we move our church forward. Let's go to 29 and then wrap up the chapter. And then, like I said, we'll come back and finish those last few words of 20, <coughs> uh, 28. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting on the roadside. And when they heard G- that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, and they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus had, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. So they're uh, coming up to Jericho, or they've gone out from Jericho. This is about 15 miles from uh, Jerusalem now. So Jesus is quickly uh, moving the caravan towards Jerusalem now. So we're not too far. And he comes across two blind men sitting on the roadside. Lord have mercy. They are echoing others in needs from previous uh, recaptions of Matthew's gospel here back in 15, verse 22. And again, in chapter 17, verse 15, these blind men, they just don't waste any words. They just cry out, Lord, have mercy on us. And they give him the title Son of David. We've asserted that they recognize his uh, divinity and his authority. And so Jesus stops after the crowd, you know, tries to rebuke them. And, you know, we, we see this happen elsewhere. You know, right? His disciples try to rebuke the children from coming to him. Uh, they tried to rebuke the woman who was coming to him. These things, you know, are... Uh, obviously take place quite often in the gospel accounts. But Jesus calls to them and says, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus's question is emphasizing his willingness to serve them. And they said, Lord, let our eyes be open. Jesus, in his pity, touched their eyes and immediately they had sight and they followed him. And we see that there's many different ways that Jesus heals, whether it's by touching them, or spitting into mud and rubbing it in their eyes. Do not pull a, a Mike Todd on that. You don't have the ability to heal your buddy's blindness. Don't spit in your buddy in your brother's face. <laughs> Please just don't do it. What Jesus does is to demonstrate a means that God will use anything or could use anything to further his kingdom. That being, you know, the the argument of rising up stones to judge a generation or using uh, mud or bread or wine or water as sacramental items. The mud being that Jesus is providing a healing to the, to the blind man who uh, we see in John, I believe it's chapter eight. It's it's, uh, nine, John chapter nine. So he has pity and he moves to heal them and they recover their sight and follow him. So, Uh, Through the nearness of the crowd and his own impending death, way heavy on him, Jesus is not too preoccupied to help these two men in desperate need. Like the people in Jericho who tried to silence the two blind men, 
We may also try and treat persons in needs as as nuisances, yet Jesus painstakingly extended his ministry to all in need, showing care and concern for them. We too have received his grace. And I think that's uh, something that we should be reminded of and something that we should kind of hold dear to that even in, you know, our uh, inability to show mercy and compassion to people who are in absolute need of it, Christ takes his, uh, takes the moments of his time and his journey to listen and show mercy and compassion to those who need it. And I think this is a big thing for the church to really consider today is how much mercy and compassion can be given to the people that are in need without trying to shuffle them under the rug. We should be listening with open ears and anticipatory hearts. We need to be examining our communities and listening to those who have struggles and finding out what they need help with. You know, in our community, we're a small uh, country town, and so we have people out here who uh, we know uh, aren't as fortunate as others, and so our church takes it upon themselves to help those families during particular seasons. We do fundraisers for the school where we get school supplies. We do a money drive for the school where we can contribute money to help purchase uh, winter clothes for the students. We sponsored families this Christmas to provide a a Christmas for a young girl. We do food raises for the food pantry here in town. And all of these things are designed to keep this community, you know, moving forward. We listen to the needs of the community, and we're, we're, we're certainly not perfect at it, but that's one of our intentions is to, be a, is to be a force in this community of hope and to be one that has the compassion and the mercy to help those who need it. So uh, that's really chapter 20 in a nutshell. Let's look back here at verse 28. We're just going to pick through it just you know a little bit and... Um, we are going to hopefully answer some of these questions that you may have. So we're going to say, let's read 28 entirely, even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve, we've addressed that and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right. So as I mentioned, the Calvinistic crowd likes to assert that, um, the many that is used here as a reference is in fact limited. It is not for all people. It's just only so many. While the word many means a lot, it doesn't mean everyone. That's how they argue the verse. Um, but let's see here. Uh, we're going to kind of look at a couple things here. So we know that Jesus is going to give his life. We've already addressed that he lays it down freely on his own volition Uh, This is demonstrated for us through a number of verses, and I'm just going to throw them out at you. Isaiah 53.10, Daniel 9.26, John 10.15, and 11.51 and 52. Romans 4.25, Galatians 1.4, 2.20, 1 Timothy 2.6, Titus 2.14, and 1 Peter 18 and 19 of chapter 1. Now we move into the argument that the many doesn't in fact or could in fact mean everybody. So let us take a look and see, hopefully, what this text can render to us. 
And again, I, I want to pay close attention to the fact that the reform crowds or those who adhere to the tulip or limited atonement in this particular instance will use a verse like this to argue that you know the death of Christ was only sufficient for many, but that's not what the text actually is stating. He's giving his life as a ransom for many. And we could argue how that many, quote unquote, is used. The Hebrew word that is used here in this text is an idiom meaning for all. Again, as I mentioned numerous times on the show, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I do know how we can examine this text. And for instance, we're going to look at um, the connecting verses, Matthew 26, verse 28 for this is my blood of the new covenant. Or if you have a King James translation, this is my blood of the New Testament, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accountable, counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Hebrews 2, 10, for it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Uh, again, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly are waiting for him. Romans five fifteen. But the free gift is not like the trespasses, for if many died through one man's trespasses, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And Revelation 5, 9. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and of your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the Hebrew word is an idiom for all. And we see a lot of often, you know, we see these other texts that are kind of pointing us to kind of the confindings of many. We, we can still assert that limited atonement doesn't factor into this. So we would assert that the death of Christ on the cross was sufficient for all people, but only many people or only, you know, those whom God has predetermined or predestined will come to know Christ. And so we, we have to look at the cross on two things. Either his blood was sufficient to cover all of the sins of all the people, but only effectual in the manner of that it covers those who actually believe in him. So it, it only works for those who believe in him, but it is grand enough to cover or could be grand enough to cover all of the sins of all mankind. And so as a Lutheran, we reject limited atonement that states that only, that only certain people were... Uh, saved under the cross, that only Christ died for certain people. We reject that. We assert that Christ died for all man, all men across all time, but only those who come to believe actually take benefit in this. And that is where we see the ransom being for many, those who uh, received the benefit of the death of Christ, because there are there many out there who reject Christ, but we can still give them the gospel in the ascent, in the sense of, Christ died for you. And if they reject that, then that's on them. And they stand before God as uh, one who has denied his son and one who has denied the free gift of grace and mercy. I want to just do a fall, a, a quick uh, rant 
if I could, to close the show out. Um, and again, we can argue limited atonement before I get to my rant. We could argue limited atonement. I've discussed this uh, a number of times over the last few years on my show, especially looking at the Lutheran versus Rome, uh, Reformed theology. Um, we want to be more uh, gracious, if you would, with the death of Christ as a Lutheran. We want to extend that for all people to hear. So the rant is a particular video by a particular pastor who was t- uh, talking about another particular pastor. And I'm not going to name names, but if you happen to have seen this video, you'll know who I'm talking about. And he goes on to say that the gospel isn't that Jesus Christ just loves you unconditionally. That's not the gospel. But the gospel, and he says, and you only see that verse pop up one time, and it's in John 3.16. Everything else you'll see is the command of repent. Repent, 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 repent. You see that over and over in the gospels. While that's true, there are only one verse that Jesus demonstrates to us the love of God that it was so great that it took, you know, God sending his son into the world to die for the sins of the world, to draw and close that chasm. And then you also see the word repent show up. You see John the Baptist preach it over and over again in the wilderness, repent, make your path straight for the kingdom of God is near, repent, repent, repent. And you even see it in the book of Acts, Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sin. But repentance is an interesting word because it can have two functions. Function A is that you are being called to turn from a sin. Repent essentially is just a simple meaning to return from or turn the opposite direction of something. So you are repenting from a sin. You are changing direction. You are stopping the sin and going the opposite direction of that. That's one use of the word repent. The other use of repent is to go from unbelief to belief. So you are repenting from your unbelief and now you are believing. So those are the two kind of functions of the word repentance that uh, that it has in scripture. So when we say repent, it can mean repent from your sins, turn from your sins, stop disbelieving God and believe God, right? So there's your two functions. But I would argue that that's not the gospel, not in its infancy. Like the most basic building block to the gospel is to establish that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You are a sinner and you needed somebody to reconcile that. You needed somebody to pay the price. You needed somebody to stand in your place. Right here at the end of Matthew 28 was the fact that he was uh, offered, he gives his life as a ransom for many. That ransom is what was paid for on the cross, that Christ died for your sins. So if we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel in that essence. Christ died for your sins. You are a sinner. You need a savior. Christ fulfills that category. Do you believe this? If they do, then we can say we, you know, then you are commanded to repent of your sins and turn to Christ and walk out your faith in fear and trembling. If they don't believe it, they reject the gospel. But to just simply tell them repent, they're not going to know what to do with that. They're not going to know why they need to do it. And they're not going to know what benefit it gets them. So I, I stand kind of against the reformed communities when they say the gospel is repent and believe in Jesus. No, the gospel is that Jesus Christ died for you now you can repent. So that's my small four-minute rant. All right. A little longer than normal, but like I said, tomorrow morning we'll have a quick episode just on a recap for week one readings. Uh, we're going to read the Bible chronological order. It's not going to be exegetical or, or super deep dive or anything like that. We're just going to kind of cover uh, some of the highlights and the chapters that we would have read together. And I pray that you can pick up your Bible next week and read 
in chronological order uh, on the show as well. I'll kind of give you a, a sneak peek, if you would, at what you should be reading next week. So that way you can kind of trail or track with us. And, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy it. So uh, until tomorrow, have a great night. God bless. Make sure you get to church on Sunday. I, this Sunday, have a baptism. I have the Lord's Supper. And I get to preach and offer the confession and absolution to my congregation. I am just so excited to get all three sacraments wrapped up in one beautiful little Sunday morning. So have a great week, guys. God bless. We'll see you all later. Thank you.